You're listening to the Unitarian Universalist Church of Lexington podcast. Take a moment to center yourself in this space and enjoy this week's sermon. excerpt from a poem that was recently banned or restricted from some readers in the state of Florida. The poem from The the Hill We Climb by Amanda Gorman. In this truth, in this faith we trust, for while our eyes are on the future, history has its eyes on us. This is the era of just redemption we feared at its inception. We did not feel prepared to be the heirs of such a terrifying hour, but within it, we found the power to author a new chapter, to offer hope and laughter to ourselves. So while once we asked, how could we possibly prevail over catastrophe? Now we assert, how could we, how could catastrophe possibly prevail over us? We will not march back to what was, but move to what shall be a country that is bruised, but whole benevolent, but bold, fierce, and free. We will not be turned around or interrupted by intimidation because we know our inaction and inertia will be the inheritance of the next generation, become the future. Our blunders become their burdens, but one thing is certain. So let us leave behind, if we, if we merge mercy with might and might with right, then love becomes our legacy and change our children's birthright. So let us leave behind a country better than the one we were left. Every breath from my bronze-pounded chest, we will raise this wounded world into a wondrous one. We will rise from the golden hills of the west. We will rise from the windswept northeast where our forefathers first realized revolution. We will rise from the lake-rimmed cities of the Midwestern states We will rise from the sun-baked south. We will rebuild, reconcile, and recover. And every known nook of our nation and every corner called our country, our people diverse and beautiful, will emerge battered and beautiful. When day comes, we step out of the shade, aflame and unafraid. The new dawn blooms as we free it. For there is always light, if only we're brave enough to see it, if only we're brave enough to be it. Hmm. Wow. Ah, there you are. Thank you. It's in my pocket if I forget where it is. All right. <laughs> I'm thinking a lot about art this morning and the art you just heard and the art we've experienced as a community. We've had a lot of art lately, right? We've created art together in our services. We've displayed art from members of our community at the wonderful Artists in the Light exhibition, friends of our community, and still there's some art out there right now, 
from a member of our community too, members of our community too. Art is something that we've really been digging deep into and it's, it's a question that's on my heart and on my mind because the poem you just heard cannot be read in at least one school in Miami-Dade County and maybe some more, more to follow. There are books that I know I grew up with, beautiful, wonderful works of literature that cannot be mentioned in certain districts, in certain places. Teachers could lose their jobs. Did you ever imagine living in a time such as this? We've been there before. We have. I remember hearing growing up when people would be like, oh, we're going to ban this book. And I'm like, it seemed to be such a one-off thing. And now it's increasing and increasing and increasing. So art is on my mind. And especially Amanda Gorman's poem, which to me is a work of art. I deal in words, right? Every single week, right? So words are my primary art form. And, and it, it speaks to hope. It speaks to getting people to, to, to move in a, a new direction it speaks to the promise. And I don't know what could be so objectionable about that. But I'm wondering, and we're not going to solve this today, <laughs> but our current culture that we live in, this current ethos that is sweeping not just our country, but across the world, Many of you know that the nation of Turkey is very close to my heart, and I know that they're having an election today that could set the course for their future. And I know where my hopes and dreams for them are, to return to the Turkey I once knew. It feels like everywhere you turn these days, there is, we can't have that over here, that critical race theory, that's the thing people want to lift up here. Or we can't talk about diversity over there, or why do we have those land acknowledgments? Why do we have to lift up this artist or this poet or this person? Let's censor that because I'm uncomfortable. Or it's tearing away at what it means to be an American is what we often hear. So this current culture, this current ethos, and, you know, again, we can't fix it, but it, it doesn't feel right. It feels like it, it, it's inching closer and closer to somewhere I don't want to be, and I know many of us don't want to be, but there's still a glimmer of hope to not go there, whatever that is. A place where censoring and tearing down art and tearing down um, beautiful visions of hope is commonplace. You know, my mother still lives in suburban Chicago, and hi, mom, you're online, um, probably. Uh, she lives in suburban Chicago, and recently, not too long ago, I think it was just before the elections in November or something like that, um, an ultra-conservative Catholic group called Hide the Pride, she works at a public library, a library that I worked at for 10 years before I went into full-time ministry, um, and uh, Hide the Pride was storming libraries across the country, and hers was one of them collecting all of the books that talk about LGBTQ persons or even have themes around LGBTQ issues, and they take them out of the library, never to return. Now, this particular group at least had the, the courtesy to check them out first so they could be billed later. But <laughs> many other groups just steal them. And so there's this 
this wave of intolerance, this wave of suspicion, and I see it being stoked by so many people, and progressives are not, you know, I'm, I'm a very progressive person, I'm not exempt from this. I will stoke the flames of division too. And for us as a unique religious tradition is for us to also contemplate how might we perpetuate that division in our spaces. It's not just the written word. You know, I talked about Amanda Gorman. I talked about public libraries and censoring books. And um, those are very important issues. It's not just the written word. All you have to do, you don't need to look far. You'll see that there's sculptures being censored. There's paintings. There's music that we're not allowed to listen to or play in certain schools or certain spaces. Or even just generally in our culture, certain music might be deemed, hmm, controversial might be deemed as something that is not in polite society. I think as Unitarian Universalists, we need to challenge those notions, those ideas, because less access to art, you look to any totalitarian or fascist regime throughout history, and they begin with restricting art and expression. And I think there's still hope there's always hope. That's my naivety. There's always hope. <laughs> but you see in schools, though, children have less access to art education than in any point in American history. That's something we should be concerned about, something that we should all be deeply alarmed about and committed to. And I feel in a community like ours, we can easily be committed to that, right? Because we have a community of artists. Who's an artist? Let me see. Who works in words, music, clay, sculpture, gardening, sewing? We have some work to do. <laughs> Art is the act of creating for the sake of beauty. And beauty is a big word, and that's another sermon, right? What's beautiful to me might be ugly to Sally. <laughs> Art is just the act of human creation. That is a very expansive view. It's beyond the stereotype of, oh, the starving artist over here, and, and oh, I just, I live to throw paint at the wall, and uh, that can be very beautiful. You know, Jackson Pollock, wonderful paintings, right? It's beyond what we think an artist should be. I like to have that expansive view. Those of you that didn't raise your hands, I guarantee there is something in your life that is art. Who works in medicine or science or research? You are creating week after week. If you don't believe there's an artistic element to it, well, everyone else here, tell them. <laughs> I like this expansive view of art, this expansive way of approaching it, this, this expansive way of embodying it, because I think that's part of the way through. We might just do it as one community. We won't fix the world, but at least we can be a place where what's happening around us is not the norm. And cultivating art in this community, just imagine what we could do. Imagine the message we would send to the world around us. Not just our community, but other UU communities, other uh, spaces where people are trying to be religious and spiritual and, and just create community in different ways. It doesn't just have to be Unitarian Universalism, but to keep bringing that ethic to everywhere we go, everywhere we embody. 
I had a dream not long ago where, and it was not long after our Artists in the Light expedition, and I just imagined that Sunday service was, we just created projects every single week, right? We created art, we created music, we created things that we didn't even know where they were coming from. And I woke up and I went, well, Sunday is really like that. You know, it's not as scripted as you think. It's, it's pure alchemy, pure jazz. It's like, how did we do that? <laughs> so many of us have art in our lives, and sometimes we're told it's just this little category over here. But you hear it more and more in other realms and places of work and living. The art of being a minister, that, that resonates. It's not a science, people. The art of being an architect, an engineer even. There's creation in so many areas of our lives. We just need to notice, just need to notice and start looking at the world, looking at the problems before us with artists' eyes. Now, art can be controversial too. That's like an elephant in the room, right? Some art, we just don't want to deal with. And artists throughout times and critics and, and, and literary critics and art critics have, have devised ways of approaching this. And many of you probably heard, well, uh, the art is separate from the artist, period. That's one of three main ways of approaching art. That comes to us from what was called the New Critics Movement in the early 20th century. It's a modernist movement. And they said, art stands alone. It doesn't matter what the artist's biography is. It doesn't matter what they do with their life. The art is its own thing. T.S. Eliot wrote of this once. <laughs> um, I'm convinced that axiomatically each creation, each work of art is autonomous. It has its own being. It doesn't matter who the artist is. So then postmodernism comes along later in the 20th century, in the beginning of the 21st century, and they say, oh, no, 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 no. Not only is art on its own, but every interaction with it creates a new experience. Some people learned this about me recently. I'm, I'm, I'm convinced there's a Tom Petty song for every occasion in life. <laughs> so me listening to it is different than Esther listening to a song and Sally listening to a song and Bill and each one of you listening to a song is a new art creation every single time. I kind of like that. Yeah. And now as we're leaving postmodernism, there's a third way. Some people call this the meta-modern meta age or post-postmodern. They don't really have a name yet. We'll know, you know, we'll know when I'm 80, you know, so what, what do we call this era we're in? Um, and they say, well, yes, and the intent of the artist, the artist's biography, and if this is a problematic artist, if that's being replicated in the art, that matters too. Now, those are three ways, three different ways. And I happen to think they have a lot more in common and definitely all have their use and purpose. It's not just one or the other here. Now, when I was growing up, I remember distinctly the moment, the day I received a VHS tape oh, <laughs> of Michael Jackson's Moonwalker. 
I watched that tape until it broke. <laughs> oh, I loved it. There's the scene with the chimp. There's the weird claymation that happened. There's the bar scene with Smooth Criminal that was phenomenal. There's this strange moment where all these children are saving Michael from some people hunting him down. I remember it clear as day. And every time I hear Michael Jackson's music today in 2023, I'm taken back to that moment. And then I go, oh, wait. What do I do with this art? What do I do with the allegations that have only continued to come out after his death? Allegations he cannot be there to defend himself against or really can't be substantiated, but allegations that continue to come and continue to come. What do you do with that? And to be honest, I've not done anything with it. I felt like I just can't. <laughs> But there's one area where I have significant hope with how we approach art, right? How we, how we approach problematic art. And I think this is important for us because as a community, if art is going to be a way through the troubles that we are currently living in, if it's just one, if it's one of many ways through, one, one more thing in our toolkit to do this, to make it through the era we're living in, then figuring out what to do with problematic art is a, just a helpful piece of that toolkit. Now, who, are, who are the Harry Potter fans in here? Oh. And if, you're, if you don't want to admit it, it's okay. Um, I live and breathe Harry Potter. I am wearing a Slytherin tie because that is my house and I am proud of Slytherin. And then I have a Ravenclaw tie because that's my husband's house. He's not a fan. I've worn my Slytherin robes here on Sunday before. It was appropriate. I don't just wear them and walk around in them. I have a wand. I have several collections of the books. I have the Slytherin editions. They're all green. I have the British editions. And then I have the editions I can abuse. <laughs> I love that world. And yet J.K. Rowling as many of us have learned, has not used her money and her influence beyond Harry Potter to create a more just and loving world. She is completely against the full inclusion of trans women as women in society. That's, that's just what it is. And has used her money and her power and her voice to cause significant division, not just in the UK, but here as well and beyond. So what do I do with that? Do I burn the books? Do I let my dog rip up my ties and my robe? You'd probably like that. <laughs> what do you do with that? And I know I don't have the answer alone, but I'm looking to how people are doing something with that. And I think that provides a way through. I'm looking at communities, trans communities, LGBTQ communities, uh, uh, BIPOC communities, which is black, indigenous, people of color, and how they're reclaiming Harry Potter, right? That wizarding world. And they're saying, you can't take this from us and we're going to make it anew. There's some great podcasts out there and commentaries that are, how do we deal with JK Rowling and her anti-trans views and reclaim? It's that reclaiming that I think is interesting for us and something that we can use and utilize in being a community that supports art. So it's about finding a way through. 
It's not a tidy answer. I never guarantee any tidy answers as a minister. <laughs> as a UU minister, never, no tidy answers. People ask me about the afterlife. <sighs> okay. <laughs> but we can look at art through all of these models. And so let's do that real quick. Let's do a little bit of that, right? Let's look at art through all three of those models, which is the art is autonomous. The art creates a new experience every time. And then, yes, the biography of the artist does matter and helps influence our decision-making here. Let's take a look here. Let's begin with something nice. The Dalai Lama. A lot of us like the Dalai Lama. He's been in the news recently for some weird things, but a lot of us like the Dalai Lama. Who likes this painting of the Dalai Lama? Who thinks it's just all right? You know, yeah, it's fine. It's a drawing of the Dalai Lama. And if you know the artist, don't say anything. <laughs> Are you having an experience with this? Is it making you think of the Dalai Lama? Now, what if I told you it was painted by George W. Bush? Good for George. Does it change your experience of the painting? at all yeah next cool this is a piece of unitarian universalist art what would unitarian universalism look like as a collage with fabric and paint who likes this who's having an experience of this yeah right cool now what if i told you it was made by an ai bot not an artist whose experience was just changed, right? Yeah, it's beautiful though. All right, so a lot of us, many of you in here grew up Catholic or in other liturgical traditions. And um, yeah, you know, you're used to seeing these Renaissance or Baroque era style, Mother Mary and baby Jesus. And you know, usually baby Jesus isn't all muscular like in some of them. and. You know, who's like, okay, if I saw this in a museum, I'd just like, oh, walk by, you know, it's, it's, it's religious art, right? Like, yeah, yeah. Does anyone like this? Anyone love it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you know, cool. The artist was Adolf Hitler. Does that change your experience of the art? One more. Modern art. Modern art. Who likes modern art? <laughs> Who likes this thing? Yeah. Okay. Do you know what it, it's a painting of? Okay. This was created by Michael the Gorilla, who was the brother of Coco the Gorilla. And it's a painting of a, him chasing a dog because they would play a game where they chased each other. Does that change your experience of the art? Okay, there we go. So the part of that exercise there, I mean, for some of them, like Dalai Lama is okay, and some others is like, oh my God, really? All three of those ways of interpreting art are at play every single time. Every single time. And it's up to us to figure out what do we do, especially with Mary and Jesus up there. What do we do with the Dalai Lama painting or Coco the, uh, Michael the gorilla, right? 
or an AI bot that's creating art. That was the prompt I put in, Unitarian Universalist Chalice, modern. There we go. Now, I didn't promise anything tidy here, but I think this exercise allows us a little glimpse of the way through, of how we interact with things, how we discern what we're going to do as a community, as, 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 as we're seeing art is being censored. Do we do a banned books month, right? Do we continue showing art that might be controversial to some, but certainly lives into our values, not just in, out there in the lobby, but everywhere in our community? Do we create art of what our vision is going to be? Do we become a community that continually creates and creates and creates where everybody is an artist, even those who didn't raise their hands? Wouldn't that be cool? Wouldn't that be wonderful? And in it, not just with the things we saw up there, in whatever we create, all of our flaws, our dreams, our hopes, our visions, things that fall flat, the failures, the successes, everything will be poured into that. And we'll be called to interact with that art in those ways. In those ways, every single time. So that's the vision. That's the hope of creating an artistic path for this place. I feel that art, again, is just one piece, one small piece, but an important piece of resistance to what we're going to be going through. Because it's not over yet. And it will, it's in Kentucky, you know that. And it will be in other places too. So one small piece. Will it solve the world's problems? It won't. But it will give us a tiny way through. Blessed be, dear friends. Amen. I hope you've enjoyed this week's podcast. If you would like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.ucl.org, where you can find more information about our grounds, staff, and upcoming events. You can also subscribe to our e-news there and learn about our virtual service offerings. We'll see you next week.